Well, over the years, I've been asked many times, where is the devil? Is he in heaven, accusing brethren, which is what Hasatan means, accusing the brethren before God? Does he reign from a throne in hell? Does he wander the earth, floating around in the air? This week I found the devil. We have, apparently, we have given the devil an open door into this world. Computers. And the devil floats in waves of Wi-Fi. He enters your home. He came into the congregation. He trashed all the computers. So this week we need prayer. <laughs> if we could exercise the devil from our Wi-Fi system. And if you think I'm being somewhat facetious, I guess I am a little bit, but uh, actually I'm being real serious. I, th I think the devil works through computers. My attitude is if you, if you can't fix it with a hammer, <laughs> what's the point? And it's never the same. It's all, every day is different. Like it, everything works. Then you wake up in the morning, and everything is broken because the vandals took the handles. <laughs> the title of this message is The Return of the King. The New Covenant portion spoke about the birth of the Beloved One. King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I want to review a little bit from last week, just a small portion. Our first introduction to God is as Habore, the creator of heaven and earth. He also, as soon as he created something in this physical realm, he gave a Torah, a set of instructions, a set of rules to guide the behavior of that which is in the physical realm. And it governs his, his Torah, his instructions govern the, uh, the works of his fingers, the moon and the stars, the animate as well as the inanimate aspects of his creation. Now, after creating heaven and earth, he isolated a specific geographical location into which he would place a very special aspect of his creation, man. In Adam, heaven and earth would touch. Adam was formed of the earth, yet he was struck by the image and the likeness of God. A truly unique aspect of creation that connected the heavens and the earth. Although God was sovereign over everything, he gave Adam a portion of his authority. He anointed him. Adam was given dominion over all the life that was in the confines of Gan Eden. It was Adam who gave names to the creatures within its borders, he was charged with tending the garden which God separated out or made kadosh, holy, from the rest of the world. It was truly a garden. It had borders, and it looked different from everything else around it. The psalmist would ponder the nature of this unique aspect of creation in Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, 
From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take a that you give a thought to him, and the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You have made him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and everything that passes through the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. What an extraordinary description. There is God, and then his anointing of mankind to have dominion, to have authority, to oversee everything within the creation. It's extraordinary calling, which is accompanied by a great deal of responsibility to do it properly, to take care with what you've been given charge over. Now, as long as Adam acknowledged God and revealed God's will on earth, he would have access to the tree of life, and he would live forever in peace with God. If he turned to his own understanding, he and God would part ways. And then not only Adam, but all creation would feel the effects of Adam's defilement. Now, my people see God's presence as a barometer, a measuring device. When we do well, the weight of God's glory descends <clears throat> from the heavens to the earth, and it dwells with man in peace. When we do poorly, the weight of his glory rises up, returns to the heavens, and we are left in some degree of confusion. Our God is a God of order, and when that order is removed, we return to the state of creation prior to his intervention in Genesis 1, verse Verse 2, where we're told that everything existed in a confusion and an emptiness and a void and a darkness. And then with the introduction of, introduction of God, things became ordered. We were now able to distinguish one thing from another. There was no chaos. God's presence left Adam when he sinned, yet the Lord allowed his image and likeness to remain with him. God did not utterly forsake the man. Adam, outside the garden, the first child to be born was, well, after the death of righteous Abel, was a man by the name of Shet. Shet had a son called Enosh. And with the birth of Enosh, men began to call once again on the name of the Lord. Prior to that, apparently, no one was calling on God. It was total confusion. The birth of Enosh, men once again started to call on God. And one of Enosh's descendants was Hanoch, Enoch. He not only called on God, but he walked with God so closely that all of a sudden he was not. For God, Lakach, took him. God took him out of this defiled world, and it was a defiled creation. It was a fallen creation after Adam's sin. He took Hanoch out of the world so that he could live and dwell in the presence of God in heaven. He was the first person to be, as we call it, raptured. There is no word rapture in the scripture. 
First Corinthians, Paul is speaking in Hebrew, uh, in Greek, and he uses the word harpezio to describe what, what we call the rapture. A catching away, a taking up of the saints to be with the Lord in the air. Well, harpezio in Greek relates to lakach, be'ivrit in the Hebrew. Caught him up, took him out of this world to be with him. Just like Adam, Gan Eden was in this world, but it wasn't really of this world. Gan Eden was a physical place, but that's the only part of it that was in this world. Gan Eden did not operate by the laws that governed the rest of the creation. It was a place that God isolated, that he made holy, where he would dwell and the man would dwell, and the, the rules, the, the laws, the Torah that governed life within those borders was different than any other place on, on earth. In the, in the garden, no weeds grew. Anybody who's ever tried to grow a garden knows that's a miracle. Every tree was beautiful and brought forth fruit that was good to eat, nourishing. The lion and the lamb lay down together. That doesn't happen anywhere. It simply doesn't happen. Every need was satisfied, and therefore nothing needed to die that something else would live. What is being described to us is a place that none of us have ever seen. Even the people, even the, the creation outside the garden had no idea what was going on in there. Utterly different, utterly holy, kadosh, separate from everything else. God's glory filled that place and there was no room for turmoil to enter. Now, after man chose to reject God's authority over him, men began to be ruled by kings, and Genesis gives us a whole list of Hamalachim, the kings of the earth. The first of these kings was Nimrod, and he ruled over all the people of the earth, Genesis 11. All the people of the earth were wandering across the sandy plains of Shinar, and they came to a place that would be later called Babylon, Babylon. It was named after the tower that they built there. God said, let us, uh, told Noah, be fruitful, multiply, scatter, fill the earth. But the people rejected that commandment also. And they decided they wanted to stay together. And so all the people of the earth were together. There was one tribe, one language. They all had the same lip in Hebrew, the same accent. Every word meant the same to every person, unlike today. Nimrod was a, a fierce man. And he ruled by fear. In fact, he is the first type, the first figure, the first example of the Antichrist, the beast of revelation, who will also rule over the whole earth with fear. God deposed him by sending confusion. And when man could no longer converse, when he he could no longer communicate with others, we scattered. In Genesis 12, God calls Avraham. His name at the time was Avram. Avraham was the father of many nations, Avram. He calls him, 
And he tells him to leave everything that he knows, his mother, his father, his land, his friends, everything, and follow God to some unknown place, a place that he would show him. From Abraham, God would make a nation that was also holy, separated from the rest of the world and attached to God. Abraham is a, an interesting character. He's kind of ornery in some respects. If you read his life before he settles down and has, has children, he's a, he's a warrior and apparently a very good warrior. And he doesn't seem to like or show any deference to the kings of this world. He has contempt for the king of Sodom, from whom he will take absolutely nothing. The king offers him stuff. And Abraham says, no. I will take nothing from you so that it cannot be said that the king of Sodom has made me wealthy. He will accept nothing from the king. Abraham eventually goes out to battle other kings who are evil, and he prevails until the victor goes to spoils. And so he became quite wealthy, and he returns to the land that God had promised. And he meets a man by the name of Melchizedek, which in Hebrew means Melchizedek's king or my king, and Tzedek is righteousness. So this man's name declares who he is, the king of righteousness. And he was also the king of Shalom, which was the name of Jerusalem before it became a city in, in, in Israel. Remember, this is before Yitzchak before there is a, an Israel, it was just called the city of peace. He's also a priest of the Most High. And to him, Abraham shows deference. He shows honor. And he brings a tenth of all the spoils that he had just won in battle and gives it to Melchizedek. Now, there's millions, perhaps billions of words de devoted to Melchizedek. Some say he was just a, a regular king with an extraordinary name. Okay. <laughs> Rough in kindergarten. It's Melchizedek here. Rough life. Hebrews chapter 7, however, explains who Melchizedek is. He is not of this world. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now here the author of Hebrews dismisses a tradition that was known in the first century and is found in the second book of Enoch, which states that Melchizedek was a descendant of Methuselah, who was the son of Hanoch. One of the reasons that Hanoch was not included in the canon. From Abraham, the Lord would make a nation he could be king over. Isaiah 44, the Lord describes himself as the king of Israel and her redeemer. Now, the Lord appeared to Israel at Sinai and expressed his desire to be their king. The Lord did not just speak to Moshe. He spoke to the entire nation. He revealed his words, and they heard his words, everyone, and they were terrified. They shrank in fear. They, they shook. Now, originally, the Lord describes Israel as a nation of priests, but we rejected God's direct leadership over us. 
We, we came to Moshe and say, please, don't let God speak to us again, for we will surely die. You go. You speak to God. Bring his words back. Put them in our ears. We will hear them, and we will do them. God accepted that arrangement. And Moshe became God's representative on earth. He was Israel's first Mashiach. Word Mashiach means anointed one. And the process was an anointing with a horn of oil that would run down, not just a little dab on the forehead. Poured the whole bottle. The Lord anointed him as a prophet and a teacher. He would bring God's words to the ears of the people. He anointed Moshe over even the high priest, his brother Aharon. His brother Aharon only did what Moshe told him to do. Moshe gave him the service from God's mouth. He told Aharon what he was supposed to do, what he was supposed to wear, when he was supposed to do it. Aharon was the high priest of Israel, but he was under Moshe. And although he's not called a king, Moshe acted like the king of Israel as well. As God's proxy on earth, it was Moshe who would judge disputes amongst the people, and he would hear God's judgment on a matter that was brought before him directly from God. Unlike the high priest who had to rely on the urim vitumim, the two stones that were put in the breastplate, the lights and the perfections of God, and they would somehow, the high priest would ask questions, and somehow the urim vitumim would give some indication as to what God wanted the high priest to determine. It's not the way it was with Moses. With Moses, God spoke panim al panim, mouth to mouth, face to face. He would lead the people into battle. And it was through Moshe that the Lord would reveal himself to Israel even in the midst of battle. While his hands are raised, Israel prevails on the battlefield. But if he got tired and his hands came down, the tide of the war would change. So everybody came to help, his, help him raise his arms, and Israel prevails. It was Moshe who revealed the will of God over the daily lives of people. Vis-a-vis, -vis, he was the king, the leader, At first, we accepted this arrangement. We were happy to have Moshe speaking. But this relationship was short-lived. We soon, once again, would reject God's anointed, Moshe. It began with grumblings, and then in an open rebellion by Korach. He was a levy, and he presents Moshe with a well-reasoned apologetic for why he should be allowed to be a priest. We all have the Holy Spirit. You have taken upon yourself too much. You have raised yourself to the level of leader. Well, actually, that's not accurate, is it? Moshe tried to talk himself out of that, didn't he? It was not Moshe who set himself as leader over Israel. That was God. Now, Moshe doesn't fight with him. He doesn't argue with him. He, he said, I will take this to the Lord. You're, you're a levy, but you're envious. You covet the role of the priest. Okay, we'll see what God has to say. God's answer is one of the most terrible curses 
to be placed upon any man in Scripture. He says the ground will open up and swallow you alive. He would go down to Sheol while he was still conscious in this body. In the day Adam forsook God, he began to decay and eventually died, and those who forsook God in the wilderness would also die. God has always presented the exact same choice to man throughout history. Deuteronomy 30, 19 through 20. I have set before you today life and death, blessing and a curse. Choose life that you might live. How do we show the choice we made? By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and holding fast to him. That indicates to God the choice we make. Let's move on to the time of the judges of Israel. One of the most misunderstood commandments of God concerns Israel petitioning Shmuel, uh, Samuel, to anoint a king over us. This is seen by most as Israel forsaking God's kingship over us. We want a man, not, not God. We were indeed in sin by this request, but not for the reasons that most give. It was not our desire for a king that was sin. It was the timing of that request that went against the commandments of God. In fact, it is one of the 613 commandments that we shall appoint an earthly king over Israel. That was a commandment by God. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. When you enter the land which the Lord has, gives you, has given you, and you possess it, and you live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. The desire for the king was not the sin. Our sin was in the timing of this coronation. We had not yet possessed the land. We entered it, but we were still fighting. Our major battle was with the Philistines. This is the key point, and we will see this in just a moment, why, the God, is so, why God is so adamant that we possess the land, that we live in it in peace before we seek to have a king over us. But looking at Samuel, he's, Samuel's an interesting character. In many ways, he was like Moshe. He held different positions of authority in Israel. He was the last judge of Israel. And he, his purview overlapped various areas of God's uh, authority over the people. He was from the tribe of Ephraim, yet we see him making sacrificial offerings unto the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9. The Torah strictly forbids such a thing. It doesn't even allow ladies to make an offering, only Kohanim. Yet here, Ephraim, a man from this tribe, is making a sacrificial offering. There are numerous special dispensations made by God concerning the leadership of Israel. God gave us general rules to follow, but God also does, God is not bound by his own, the rules he gave us. He is God. He operates differently. You will have no graven images. You will make nothing in heaven, nothing in earth. You don't even know what it looks like. Except the ones I tell you to make. The chruvim, the winged angels that sit over the, the ark. That's a graven image. It would have been sin not to make that. It's an exception 
from the general rule, you shall not make. If I tell you to make it, then do it. There were many images we were told to make. The Lord abandons the rule of the firstborn in the, in the succession of the kings. The firstborn was to get double portion of the inheritance from the father. The firstborn was to, to enter into the, the same trade that the father had. The other children could choose what they wanted, but to show honor, the firstborn, if, if your father was a tent maker, you're a tent maker. God doesn't follow that in the succession of kings. The first true king of Israel, David, is not Ishai's or Jesse's firstborn. Solomon is not David's firstborn. The succession of kings does not follow the rule of the, the law of the firstborn. Now, God chose Samuel, and he anointed him to make God's will known to the people. Shmuel was the most powerful man in Israel. He was more powerful than the Eli, the, the high priest at the time. He not only was the judge of Israel, he showed them the way of righteousness during his life. And the people looked to Samuel to hear God's instructions. When Shmuel became old, he appointed his sons to succeed him as the judge of Israel. But his sons did not walk the way of righteousness as did Shmuel. They are corrupt and they compromise justice by taking bribes, which the Lord calls in the Torah, any judge that takes a bribe is an abomination. He's a foul stench in the nostrils of God. Hated. That part hasn't changed. We look at, you know, it's one thing for a lesser man to take a bribe. But if you're a judge, if you're in a place of authority, and you take a, a bribe and pronounce innocence or guilt based on the money that you get, even in our own society, you are judged far more harshly than if just the average Joe walking down the street. The people told Shmuel of these things and petitioned him to appoint a king over Israel. Now Samuel warns warns Israel, careful what you want, you may get it. You really don't want a king right now. He will abuse you. He will steal from you. And the people... I don't understand it, but I don't suspect I would have behaved any different. They don't seem to care. They insist that he appoint a king. Now, if you remember the criteria, you shall surely appoint a man that I choose. The people didn't exactly choose Shaul, Saul, as the king. God actually chooses Saul as the king. We accept him with open arms. They wish to have a king like all the nations of, that surround them. That's found in the Torah. That he may judge them. That's found in the Torah. And go out before them to fight their battles. 1 Samuel 8. Once again, this is the, the key point, the focal point. In 1 Samuel, we see the man that the Lord will give to Israel as the king. In verse 2, Shaul is described as the tallest man in Israel and the best-looking guy in all of Israel. You know, 
if you look back over our elections, we still choose leaders who are tall and good looking. If you're short and ugly, you don't get elected. Pardon my descent into facetiousness. The Lord is here giving us an object lesson. I'm going to give you what you want. And I'm going to give you one who is strong and tall and a good warrior. But you're not going to be happy. First of all, the kings of Israel were supposed to be from Judah. Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Yehuda until Shiloh comes. Amongst my people, Shiloh is Mashiach. To him shall the obedience of the people be. Shaul is from the tribe of Binyamin. Benjamin. Our second sin is a little more subtle. In our request, we wanted a king to lead us into battle. And God gives us the fiercest warrior in Israel. He's the biggest guy. Everybody is afraid to fight with Shaul. He was well suited to fulfill our desires, but God didn't want us to have a king before we conquered the land. He didn't wish us to see and give glory to a man who would lead us into battle. He wanted us to see him that way. It was the same thing when we came to the Red Sea and we were trapped. The Red Sea is before us. The armies of Egypt are behind us and we're there. We have no weapons. We're outnumbered. All is lost. And God's words, stand, do nothing. Stand and see the salvation of your God. God was not asking us to participate. And God alone holds back the armies of Egypt. The Red Sea opens up. We pass through. The fires die down. The armies begin to chase us, and the Red Sea collapses on them. We observed this. Who is like our God? Who's like you? We, we couldn't help. This was all done. If you are for us, who shall be against us? Well, we forgot that. Later on, when God calls us to fight, what? We're scared. How can we be scared? We just saw the power of heaven defeat our enemies, and we just stood there and watched. Where does fear enter in? We learn this lesson again with Shaul. Almost immediately, we see that the physical strength is not the critical criteria for the warrior. The heart of the warrior is far more important. When faced by someone taller than him, Shaul shrinks in fear. And a much smaller David, filled with, filled with a faith in God, he couldn't even wear the armor, stands before the giant Goliath and defeats him. David was from the tribe of Judah, and he would be the first true human king of Israel. And upon his throne would Shiloh, the celestial king of Israel, sit, and he would rule over his people. Now, most of Christianity just celebrated the birth of the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who would rule over all the kings of the earth, as it is described in Zechariah 14. And as the holy wind was breathed into Adam, and he became a living soul, alive, God breathed his holy wind into Midian, a young Jewish maiden, a virgin. And in her human form, in her, a human form was created within her. And Paul describes this one 
as the second Adam, the one who would fulfill the calling of man on earth. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. The words of Gabriel to Miriam fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Miriam chosen from amongst all the women of the earth. The Holy Spirit was breathed into her and a new kind of life started to, to grow within her. Once again, one who would connect heaven and earth, one in whom heaven and earth would touch, formed flesh, but yet filled with a glory and a splendor that was even greater than Adam's, a power and a strength that certainly dwarfed. Adam was tempted and fell. Before Yeshua ever entered into his ministry, was the first thing that happened. He was tempted to test his mettle, so to speak, to see he was tempted in everything that we are tempted with. Power, authority. Never sinned. Yet even though foretold, man would once again reject their true king, the light of the world. In the first chapter of John, where John is explaining to us that that. Yeshua is the word of the Lord. Memra Hashem. God's manifestation on earth that mankind could perceive and receive. In verses 10 through 12, he, Yeshua, was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. The nations of the world did not recognize the one who created them. They, don't, they didn't remember the kiss when they were born, when God pressed his lips and blew life into their nostrils. They forgot. He came to his own, Israel, the ones he called out of the world to remember that moment when he breathed life into them, to separate them from the world unto God. He came to Israel, and we didn't receive him. But then he, the blessed hope, but as many as received him, either from the world or from Israel, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe upon his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but those who were born of God, born from above. Pilate rejected and dismissed the king of kings when Yeshua told him his kingdom was not of this world. Pilate, a complete empiricist, he didn't care. As long as your kingdom is not of this world, I don't, I don't care. Be a king. Do it someplace else. As long as you're not challenging the authority of Caesar, 
What do I care? And he could find no fault in Yeshua. Following what John says in chapter 1, the religious authority of my people, the high priest, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, also rejected the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When Pilate spoke to them of Yeshua in terms of, well, this one is, is your king. And they said, we have no king except Caesar. That is the most poignant statement by our leaders. Now, others in Israel didn't believe that. Obviously, we fought a rebellion. But the religious leadership of Israel in the first century was, century was utterly corrupt. The high priest was essentially Rome's ambassador to Israel. He bought his office from the Roman procurator, from Pilate, paid money, and his job was to keep Keep Israel from violence against Rome. That statement by our leaders represents an utter rejection of God and his anointed king for a guy who was simply a madman. Caesar at that time, mad. But those, either from Israel or the nations who saw past this facade of flesh and beheld the light and the life of Yeshua's presence, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And we were born from again. When I accepted the Lord, I died with him in the likeness of, death, of his death, and I rose in the newness of life. I was not the same man. The man who walked into those waters was not the man who rose up out of those waters. Nothing was the same. I didn't see the world the same. I didn't see people the same way. I certainly didn't see my brothers and sisters in the Lord the same way. I was born anew from above. Not a flesh not of the will of man, but of God, who gave me a new awareness. As Yeshua, we are not of this world, although we remain in it. As Yeshua, our only purpose in creation is to speak of another world and another kingdom that is not of this world, of things so lofty that the soul can hardly believe the good news. You know, we read Revelation 21 and 22, and it's beyond anything that we have experienced since the Garden of Eden. None except Adam and Chaba have any understanding of the nature of life that is described by Revelation 21 and 2. No pain, no suffering. No sorrow, no mourning, no death. Those things have passed away. That's why in, in Jewish theology, the kingdom of God on earth in a re rejuvenated earth is like returning to Gan Eden where every need is met and we live in peace and the lion and the lamb lay together. Let the children honor their father. May we speak of the beauty of the Lord and declare his greatness and his mercy and his grace. May we tell of the soon return of the king. As Zechariah 14 describes, who will reign from Yerushalayim and all of the kings of the earth will bring their glory in and recognize his authority and the end of his authority 
there will be no end. He will rule over the whole earth. If you're not praying every day, Lord, come. I don't understand you. This world is becoming tedious for the believer. This world is a vexation for the soul of those who seek to walk the path of righteousness. We're being hindered at every turn. We're having to make choices that are not easy choices. We keep gazing up to a kingdom, not of this world. As Hanoch, at some point, he's going to take the righteous out of this world because it is utterly defiled, just like he did with Hanoch. He did the same thing with Eliyahu. Elijah was Hanoch, taken up before all the people. He will do so again with the prophet, with the prophets. He'll take them up. May the constant prayer be upon our lips. But truly the spirit and the bride, that's us. Say come. Father in Yeshua's name. All honor and glory to you. And it is our constant hope that we would hear that great shofar. And that we would be caught off to be with you in the air. Less because of the nature of this world and more because of the nature of the world to come. A time of glory, a time of basking in the light of your presence, a time of peace we have never known, a time of contentment we can't even define. Our souls long for you, Lord. May our, may our flesh follow suit in Yeshua's precious name. Amen. Amen.